And as we started going throughout this battle with cancer, I really started to gain a, a closer relationship with God because I really realized that he had already shaped me and gave me that playbook that I needed for Leah to beat this disease. So just to see the work that he was doing in our lives, the work that he was doing in other people's lives and how he was using us to really make an impact on the world. I've never saw God move that way before in my life. And there's nothing like absolutely nothing I can go through in my life that can strip me of my faith that I have in God. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today's guests have braved life and death moments and now strive to set an example for others as they trusted God for his life-giving presence. Former NFL football player Devin Still and former Army Ranger and Black Hawk Down survivor Kenny Thomas. First up, Devin Still is an All-American defensive end who spent his NFL career playing for the Cincinnati Bengals, the Houston Texans, and the New York Jets. In 2014, Devin and his four-year-old daughter, Leah, captured hearts all over the world as they shared about Leah's cancer journey through Devin's Instagram account. Devin gives us a glimpse into his early years, a rocky childhood, and how he found a real relationship with God in adulthood. Within just weeks of his faith being reignited, Devin discovered Leah was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. He also recounts a pivotal moment in a hospital chapel that changed the way he viewed his new faith and his daughter's disease. My name is Devin Steele. I'm a former professional football player. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and I attended the Penn State University. And now I spend my time traveling the world, giving motivational talks and inspirational talks, teaching people my playbook on how they can get back into the game and sharing my story about my faith and how it really helped me overcome every obstacle that I faced in my life. So when I was growing up, God didn't really play a big part of my life. Um, I lived with my mom and dad up until I was in the third grade and they ended up getting a divorce. And neither one of them really went to church or had a solid, solid foundation in God. Um, but I used to go to church with my grandma all the time up until I was about in fourth grade and then she moved to Michigan. So once she moved, it's like God was taken out of my life. And I really wasn't reintroduced to him until my college years when I was facing a lot of struggles with my injuries. And I really leaned on God to help me through those tough times because I felt so isolated most of the time because nobody was there with me and I was away from my family. So I spend a lot of nights just getting to know God and talking to him so that he can help me through those trying times. I got to know God through just prayer. Um, I really wasn't studying the Bible or studying the words. I remember different things that I would hear in church uh, when I was going to church with my grandmom when I was a child, but just sitting down and just having a conversation with God, like I would talk to my friends just about the things I was struggling with in my life and the things I needed help with is how I really built a relationship with God. It took me a long time to realize I had talent in football. Um, when I first started, I was absolutely terrible. Uh, I often thought about giving up football, but because of my dad and the way he really parented us, he made me stick it out, right? Whatever you, you put your heart into, whatever you say that you want to do, you have to give it everything you have. So he made me continue to play football, and I started to develop a love and a passion for it not just for the sport, but the ideal of teamwork and working with people from all different aspects of life to reach a common goal. And it was probably around my junior year 
that I really felt like I had a shot of going to the next level of going to play D1 football. So I just gave everything I had to the sport. And my junior and senior year, I ended up getting over 50 scholarships to almost every college in the country to play football. So when I got it, it was just like I was overwhelmed, right? Because nobody in my family or nobody in the community I was growing up in ever experienced anything like that. But, you know, I had a chance to really change my family dynamic dynamics and show people what's possible if you give it something your all. When I was growing up, when I first started playing sports, my parents attended every single game that I had from when I was playing basketball, football, just every sport that I played in. And with Penn State only being three and a half hours away, I wanted to keep that same feeling where I could look up in the stands and see my parents because it made me play harder. So I decided to go to Penn State so that they can see me play at the next level every weekend. When I first got to Penn State, I had a chance to really play as a true freshman. And But one practice we had, I ended up tearing my ACL and my MCL. So I had to sit out my first year um, after getting surgery just to rehab and get my leg back to the right strength. And when I made it back the following year, uh, around the same time in training camp, I ended up breaking my leg again um, during one of our scrimmages. So I had to sit out another year due to injury. So I really started to lose faith in myself. I started to lose faith in God, really. And I saw people around me start to lose faith in me. But I just stuck it out because I felt like my why was bigger than the struggles I was going through. And I came up in an environment where it was really stricken with a lot of drugs and violence. And I saw a lot of things that no kid should have to see when I was growing up. And I made a decision that I was going to go through that pain today to make sure that the people I loved and care about didn't hurt tomorrow. And I wanted to be able to raise my family in a better environment than I grew up in. My first two years in the NFL really started off like my first two years in college where I was really struggling with injuries. Um, my first year, I did pretty well. Um, I had a breakout game, the eighth game of the season, where I had eight tackles uh, and two tackles for loss. But that following year, I ended up struggling with injuries and I dislocated my elbow during a game against the Lions. And I had to be out of football for five weeks as I rehab my arm to regain its strength and mobility. And when I got back two games later, I ended up blowing out my back against the Steelers. So I had to get back surgery and I was out for the rest of the year. But a week after getting that back surgery, I got diagnosed with blood clots in my lungs and I had to get rushed to the hospital where they told me if I didn't make it there that night that I probably wouldn't have made it to the morning. And I remember the doctor telling me about my blood clots that I probably wouldn't be able to play football again because if I ever got hit or I got a cut on a football field, I may bleed out because of the blood thinners that I was on. So she put me on blood thinners and told me I had to come back in six months to see if the blood thinners worked. So it, it just seemed like everything in my life was falling apart at that moment. And that's when my wife, Asha, let me know that Maybe we not we needed to get back in the church and, and get a better foundation in faith because maybe that was God calling us to him. So we decided to get back into church. And it was a couple of days before that six month was up and I had to go back to the doctors. And I remember the pastor saying that something amazing, something special is going to happen to somebody in the next couple of days. And when he said that, it's like, it hit my heart 
right? Because he didn't know about my situation, but I knew about my situation. And I knew how big this moment was going to be for me that week because I thought I was going to lose everything that I worked so hard for since I was 13. So I really held on to his word and I just prayed that whole week that he was speaking to me. He was talking to my situation. But a couple of weeks after that, I decided to take Leah down to Disney World because I had never been there and I wanted her to experience it. It was amazing because everybody was so happy. It was like we were living in a different world. I really couldn't believe it. I felt like a little kid again. But Leah had sat down in the middle of the street. And when I look back, I told her to get up. And she just sat there with her legs crossed and she wasn't moving. And I was kind of embarrassed at first thinking, you know, why is she throwing a, a temper tantrum at Disney World? Everybody's supposed to be happy. Like, what kid wouldn't want to be here, right? So I had went back out to Cincinnati to go to our training. And the following week was going to be Leah's first dance recital from her dance class. And I asked my coach if they could allow me to go back home because I wanted to be there to support her. Just like my parents was always there to support me. I wanted her to be able to look up and see her dad there. So they told me I can go ahead and go home to support her. The morning of her dance recital, I stopped at a red light and my phone started to ring. And when I answered it, it was Asha's grandmother. And she had told me that Leah wasn't feeling good and she wasn't eating any of her food that I needed to set her up with a a doctor's appointment. And I asked them where they were and she told me that they were at the IHOP. And it was crazy because the IHOP was right across from where I was stopped at the red light. So when I walked into the restaurant, Leah had her head down on the table and she wasn't eating. She wasn't talking. And I remember asking her if she was okay and she just shook her head no. So I decided to pick her up and take her to the urgent care that was across the street from the restaurant, hoping that they was going to tell us that she had an ear infection or something like that. And they would give her some type of medicine to help her feel better so she can make it to her dance recital that night. But when they started running tests on her at the urgent care, they didn't find any evidence of an infection anywhere. And I started telling them about some of the leg pain that she was complaining about that I thought came from gymnastics and falling off the balance beams and that she would only use when I would tell her to clean up the room. I would tell her to go clean a room and she would say, oh, I can't. My leg hurt. So we didn't really pay her any mind. We thought she was just trying to get out of doing her chores. So the doctor ended up touching her hip where I told him that she complained about the pain and she jumped from the doctors. And when she jumped from the doctor, she jumped in such a way that you knew that she was really in pain, that something was wrong. So they told us that they couldn't do nothing else for her at the urgent care. So they sent us about a mile away to AI DuPont Hospital to get more testing. And they decided to give her MRI and a CAT scan. And the test was taking so long. And I knew from just all the injuries I faced in my life that MRIs and CAT scans only take about 45 minutes. But we were hitting the two-hour mark. So I kind of prepared myself to hear the doctor say that she had cancer. I don't know why I did that, but I just felt like they were going to come out and say it. And about 15 minutes after I told myself that, the doctor came out and told us that she had cancer my world just got flipped upside down. I didn't really know what to do. I remember just going blank after the doctor said cancer. And I snapped back to reality once they told us um, that she was, once she told us that she was going to go to the waiting room 
and tell Leah's grandparents. And I just remember telling her no, that I didn't want her to go tell them that if they were going to hear something like this, that I was going to go tell them. And I remember walking down the hallway to the the waiting room and I'm just nervous because I don't know what I'm going to say. And I'm having all these thoughts run through my mind. And when I walk in to the waiting room, I remember her grandmother and my dad just looking at me and they knew something was wrong because it was written all over my face. And when I went to open up my mouth, I couldn't get it out. And I remember just falling to the ground, crying, and my dad running over to me, rubbing my back, asking me what was wrong to just tell him what was wrong. And um, I, I kept trying to say it, and eventually it came out, and I just blurted out cancer. And I remember just seeing her grandmother cover her mouth and sprint out the room. And my dad just kept hugging me, telling me it was going to be okay. But in my mind, I I knew it wasn't going to be okay. I was just lost because, like I said, a couple of months before that, I had just took a walk of faith. I had just decided to give my life to God. I thought in my mind that my life was supposed to get easier, not harder. So I started off just blaming God, asking why he could do this to her. Why would he allow this to happen to my daughter? And I remember talking to the pastor who baptized us, who came to the hospital, I think two days after she was diagnosed. And I asked him, how could this happen? Like, I just gave my life to God. How could this happen? And he sat there speechless. He didn't really know how that can happen to her. So for about a week, I was just confused on whether I should continue to have faith in God. Because if there was a God, he wouldn't allow this to happen to a four-year-old girl for her to have a 50% chance of dying before she even had a chance of living. There was a time where we went to church and they said, if you want to feel God's presence, all you have to do is ask for it. I remember one night I decided to go down to the chapel in the hospital and I fell to the ground in that chapel with snot and tears just running down my face onto the, the carpet that I was kneeling on. And I just started asking God, why did this happen to my daughter? Like, Why does she have to go through this? Begging him to take the cancer out of her and to put it into me. And I remember just asking if he was there, if he was with us, to just show me that he was there. And about five seconds after I said that, I remember every door in that room just shaking. Like it was an earthquake. And I got so scared that I hurried up and got up and I ran out the room because I didn't know what was going on. Until this day, I really regret getting up during that time because I felt like God was talking to me during that time, letting me know that we wasn't alone, that he was there with us. And I remember going back to her room and I just felt different, right? Like I was blaming God for allowing this to happen to my daughter. But I realized that because my daughter had stage four cancer, that She's been living with this for a long time. So maybe it wasn't God allowing this to happen to her, but he was allowing us to see what was wrong with her to give us a chance for her to be healed. Because I honestly don't think that God is in the tragedy, but he's in the healing of situations. And a lot of people don't get to experience God because once tragedy happens, they start to blame God instead of 
letting God do his work so you can see the true power of God. But once I took that approach that that was God revealing to us that she had cancer and he was giving us a chance to save her life, it was like our whole fight had changed. She now had a purpose and we now had a new found faith and confidence in her battle with cancer. I spent about two weeks in the hospital with her when she first got diagnosed where I never left the hospital because I just wanted to be by her side to hug her and kiss her and let her know it was going to be okay. But I remember one night I had to go home to my wife's apartment to get a change of clothes and just to, you know, get a breath of fresh air because I haven't left the hospital in two weeks. And when I went to her house, there were people over there And I remember sitting on a couch and somebody told a joke and everybody in the room, it was about eight people, everybody in that apartment broke out in laughter. And I remember laughing too, but something in my mind told me to stop laughing about five seconds after I initially started laughing. And I started to question myself, like, what did I think was so funny when I had my four-year-old daughter in the hospital fighting death? Like, how could I possibly be laughing in that moment and I sat there and I started to think about a lesson that I learned when I was playing Little League football when we were getting demolished in one of our games and we never really lost before like we was undefeated we were having a great season so everybody was walking around with their heads down like they was just frustrated and out of the game and my Little League coach pulls us into a huddle and he tells us that the moment that we stop having fun playing the game is the moment that we already lost. And in that moment, I had promised myself that no matter what we were going through, no matter if Leah had stage four cancer or whether she only had a 50% chance of living, we wasn't going to allow cancer to steal our joy, to steal our fun. So I made sure in that moment that everything we did, every video that we posted on Instagram, we were showing people that we were having fun. When Leah got diagnosed, my first reaction was to retire from football because there was no way I was going to leave her in the hospital without me being by her bedside to let her know that she wasn't alone. But the doctor walked into the room and they told us that her treatment was going to cost close to a million dollars. And I knew although I was in the NFL, I didn't have a million dollars in my bank account. I was a second year in in the league and... I talked to the Bengals and I realized that our insurance covered 100% of Leah's treatment. So although I didn't want to leave her side, I knew I had to make that sacrifice in order for her to have the best treatment to beat this disease. So they told me to just take time in Delaware to just be with Leah and get everything in order so that she had the best chance of beating cancer. And after we decided her treatment plan, I went back out to Cincinnati and you know I was falling apart out there because everything in me wanted to be with Leah. Like I was physically in Cincinnati, but my heart and my mind was in Philadelphia where she was getting treated at. And I wasn't focused on football at all. I mentally wasn't in meetings. I mentally wasn't at practice. There were times where I just felt myself starting to cry as a play was going on. Right. As we were going through different practices or we were going through games, I would be on the football field crying when I should have been focused on the guy that was in front of me. So I ended up getting released from the team. 
but they told me they was putting me on the practice squad so that I didn't have the same responsibilities that will come with being on the active roster so that I can travel back and forth to Philadelphia to be with Leah to make sure everything was going well. And for them to do that, it was amazing because, like I said in my ESPY speech, there was nothing I could give the team at the moment because everything I had, I was giving to my daughter because I wanted her to beat this disease. So for them to stick by my side, it really helped us out a lot. I was on the practice squad for one week, and then they put me back up on the 53-man roster. And when they did that, they started to sell my jerseys, and 100% of the proceeds went to Cincinnati Children's Hospital for cancer research. And when within the first week, we sold more jerseys than has ever been sold before in the NFL and for the Bengals. And we eventually ended up raising $1.3 million that we donated to Cincinnati Children's, where Leah had a chance to come up to Cincinnati for the first time after being diagnosed and presented the check to the hospital, which was it was amazing because it really showed the power of going public with our story and how many families were going to be helped because we wasn't selfish in keeping this story to ourselves and we used my platform of the NFL the right way. The best thing both Leah and Asha taught me was that I'm good enough. When you're an NFL player, a lot comes with it. Um, a lot of responsibility, uh, a lot of notoriety. You're put on a, a pedestal by people in society. And when you lose that, sometimes you wonder who you are. You struggle with your identity. You wonder if the people around you really loved you for you or they loved you for the position that you were in. And Leah and Asha have always showed me that I'm good enough, that they don't love me because I played football. They love me because the man I am. And to have two people in your life that support you and show you love no matter what, it's it's an amazing thing. Every night before Leah goes to bed, she always asks me to read her bedtime stories. It's something I've been doing since maybe she was about one years old where I would always read to her before she went to bed. And we read through so many books, I didn't know if she had any more books in the house for us to read. So I went through her treasure chest and I just picked out the Jesus Calling book. And I didn't even put two and two together that I was about to do this podcast. It was like the book had just spoke to me because I'm trying to teach my daughter more about God and her faith. And I just felt like having these devotionals could really help her out. So every night we read two devotionals out of the book and we just talk about them and see if she understands it and what it means to her. And the other night I read a devotional, uh, it was the January 9th devotional that really hit home and it hit home for Leah. And she just started tearing up as we were talking about this. And it's called Never Give Up. And it starts off that nothing is impossible for God. And that's Luke 137. And it says, I am always with you and for you. I'm your biggest fan. When you decide to do something that fits my plans for you, nothing in heaven or on earth can stop you. You may face some problems along the way to your goal. That is part of living in an imperfect world, but never give up. With my help, you can conquer any problem. But don't just rush headlong toward your goal. Try making things happen when you want them to. First, come to me. Ask me to guide you every step of the way, minute by minute. Let me set the pace. Sometimes I may ask you to wait or to slow down or even stop for a while. But remember, my timing is perfect. 
trust me and enjoy sharing the journey with me. And when I read that, it connected with me on a number of levels. So I remember putting her in her first treatment and it was supposed to be the treatment that saved her life. It was a new clinical trial that just came out where she had to go for four rounds of high dosage chemo followed by uh, five days of radiation where she had to sit in a room that was covered in plastic all by herself because nobody could be in the room with her because the radiation was so high. And when it was time for her to get her scans, I knew from all the prayer that I had did that she was about to be healed, that the doctors were going to tell us that she was cancer free. But when we got the results, it was the exact opposite. And we found out that the cancer had went from her hip to her shoulders, to her arms, to her chest, to her neck, and even to her skull. It felt like God was just ignoring my prayers. But I kept going because I was taught in football that you have to fight for four quarters regardless of what the scoreboard says or how tired you are or how much pain you're in. So we decided to keep fighting. And about two or three months after that, after getting that news, Leah ended up going into remission. And I realized that if Leah wouldn't went into remission, that first treatment that I was praying so hard, we wouldn't have had the impact that we had. Like there was still more work we had to do. There were still more people we had to touch. And by trusting in God's timing, by never giving up and keep pushing forward, we got what we want with Leah being in remission, but we also got to touch a lot of more people's lives that we wouldn't had had she had beat cancer the first treatment. She's she's doing really well. Um, she's three years, almost four years in remission. Of course, with the amount of high dosage chemo that she received, there's going to be lingering issues that she has to deal with. Um, but we'll take them small issues compared to what she had to go through before. But once we hit this five-year mark, she'll officially be declared cancer-free, although we already live our life as if she's cancer-free because I feel like when you when you put your mind in a place where you want to go, your body will soon follow and the things around you will start to work in your favor and God will start to work in your favor. So we're just really enjoying life and watching her be a normal child and getting to play outside and going to school and not have to be worried about being stuck with needles and things like that. Devin continues to use any means he can to tell others about the impact his relationship with God has had on his life and on the life of his family. He has just released a book called Still in the Game, Finding the Faith to Tackle Life's Biggest Challenges. It's interesting how this book came about because I never had any plans of writing a book. I wasn't interested in it. But when I signed with the Houston Texans after Leah went into remission, I ended up getting hurt where I messed up my foot and I had to get surgery. And my mom had came down to Houston to help Asha take care of me. So she's a big fan of Oprah. So she's always watching Oprah shows. And I believe she had on uh, Super Soul Sunday. And I woke up on the couch really groggy. And I remember looking at the TV when I woke up and Oprah was interviewing Jack Canefield um, from Chicken Soup for the Soul. And something about that interview really inspired me to get off the couch and to go into my room and really write down all the struggles that I had in my life and how 
God had prepared me to to overcome those obstacles. The book is called Still in the Game because I want to show people that no matter what they're going through, as long as they're alive, they're still in the game. And I wanted to call myself the comeback coach because I want to teach people how to make their comeback. But in my eyes, when I call myself the comeback coach, I'm not the head coach like you see in sports, right? I look at myself as the assistant coach and I'm just using God's game plan of what he gave me to teach other people because at the end of the day, God is really the head coach and I'm just trying to spread his message of faith to show them that life is going to be filled with a lot of struggles, but within those struggles are lessons that will be able to take you to the next level, the lessons that will be able to take you to the place that you say you want to go. So I just really hope that this shaped people's mindset and shows them that how struggles are necessary in order to grow because without pain, we wouldn't know what sunshine is. You can find Devin's book still in the game at your favorite book retailer today. Stay tuned for our chat with Kenny Thomas after a brief message about a beautiful new edition of Jesus Calling. Are you looking to introduce a friend or a loved one to the peace that can be found by spending time with God daily? There's a beautiful new edition of Jesus Calling that makes a gorgeous gift for someone who might be seeking a new perspective for a new year. It's the same Jesus Calling daily devotional that has inspired over 25 million readers, now updated with a lovely fabric cover and eye-catching foil with feminine floral touches. This elegant new version also features large text and written-out scripture verses with each passage. For more information about this stunning new edition of Jesus Calling, visit jesuscalling.com botanical. That's jesuscalling.com botanical. Now, let's get back to the second half of our program. Motherhood. It's a journey like no other, teeming with love, unparalleled dedication, and moments that pierce the very essence of your soul. It's a trek that demands to be celebrated, lauded, and embraced in its entirety. Celebrate the moms in your life this Mother's Day with two beautiful gift books, Jesus Calling for Moms by Sarah Young and Grace for the Moment for Moms by Max Licato. These heartfelt devotionals will remind the moms in your life just how special they are. Jesus Calling for Moms and Grace for the Moment for Moms are available now where all books are sold. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for a special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Our next guest is country music artist and former Army Ranger, Kenny Thomas. As the son of a Vietnam soldier, Kenny was impressed with a strong sense of duty to serve in the military. In 1993, he was deployed to Somalia, where he found himself entrenched in the horrific events portrayed in the book and movie Black Hawk Down. Now, Kenny is a motivational speaker who draws on his military experience to inspire audiences worldwide. 
He reflects on his growing up years, about the fateful day in Mogadishu in 1993, and describes the work he does now to help veterans transition back into civilian life, while demonstrating how gratitude can drastically change your perspective. Well, my name's Kenny Thomas. Uh, I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, which is a little college town, University of Florida. And my mom was a single mom, my sister and I. We grew up in an apartment. And I look back on it, you know, she was, my mom was in her 20s, going to college, working two jobs with two kids. And they had, you know, our family was a victim of, you you look back on it now, you're like, oh, I get it. it was the Vietnam War. Like my dad did two deployments and came back and he just, their marriage was a casualty of that. But when you're a kid, you just, you know, that's, you don't really understand all that. Well over 90% of the people that serve in our nation had someone in their family that served before them. It's a family business and it's not anything that he pushed on me. In fact, he probably uh, was very hands off about it, but it was just something you respected. And with the first goal for was when I enlisted. So I was a 20, what was I, I was 24. I just graduated college and the war broke out. I'm like, well, you know, I should probably go do my part. Right, so I went into the Rangers and that's a, cause I, that's what my dad had done. He was a Ranger in Vietnam. So I kind of sort of knew what they were about. We were deployed to Mogadishu uh, uh, as part of a special operations package in 93 there's a guy named Adid. He was a bad man. He was attacking the United Nations food shipments. He started attacking our troops who were guarding the food shipments. And then we were sent in as this posse to go get this guy. The challenge was that we, as America, had pulled out of Somalia already. And then we went in under under the radar to go get this guy. And then he went into hiding. So it proved to be a pretty difficult mission to get him because he knew we were there. And on this day, the 3rd of October, there was a building in downtown uh, that we knew was a bad part of the town. And we knew that a daylight raid was not preferred, but that's when they were meeting. So we went in and the mission was a success. We got the guys that were in the building that we needed to get. It was while we were waiting to get exfilled was when the first helicopter got shot down. And that's when the mission changed. So now all of us who were on the target building who had stormed the building were now waiting to get out of there. Now we see this bird go down about five blocks away. And so the mission's changed. We're going to go secure that crash site and try and rescue any of the guys that were still alive. And it just became, you know, we were fighting the whole city by then. It went through the night and come the morning time, there were so, we knew it was a bad part. We just didn't have any idea that by the time it was done, you know, we had there was 135 guys on that mission. 78 were wounded, 19 were killed, and so so it became a. It was just a very historic battle that no one knew about it until the movie came out, which was almost you know 10 years later, and that's pretty much what people know me for is as a that story kind of led to everything I do. I got out of the army, signed a record deal, came up here, started writing songs in Nashville. People found out that I was part of that and a veteran because I was involved with so many veteran causes. And then they started, Hey, well, tell us more about that. Tell us about the Black Hawk Down thing. And then I started talking about it and doing luncheons and things like that. And that just sort of grew. And now I'm all over the country as a 
really, I don't know what the word keynote means, but that's what they call it. So keynote speaking. So I'm at, I'm like the speaker for all kinds of conferences and I've met uh, all kinds of left, right, north, south, every industry out there. If it has an association, I've probably had a chance to speak for it. It was General Patton had said that the single most important characteristic in a great soldier is confidence because it gives them the the ability to know that whatever is asked of them, they're going to be able to pull it off. But mostly it gives you confidence in each other because you do so much training together and you live together and you bleed together and then you go and you do these missions together. Those are your brothers. Those are your family. You know the other person has your back no matter what. They're not going to divorce you because it's not working out. They're not going to... Uh, say they can't come in to work today because they don't feel good. They, they don't have something else going on that they're going to call in and say is more important. They're not going to bail on. They're going to be there. And that gives you that confidence that you can go, that you're better trained than anything that you're up against. And so then when the call comes, you know you're ready. When people start going down, you realize, okay, wow, if it could happen to him, it could happen to me. And if it could happen to me, instead of that switch that normally goes on in most of our lives, which is, oh my gosh, I got to save myself. Look after number one. It doesn't. It's you, instead it switches and you go, okay, well, I can't let that happen to anybody else. And this is when you see people start doing heroic acts of valor, not because they're heroes or valor, it's because they're just trying to take care of one another. And they, they're gonna, they, they don't worry about themselves anymore. It's completely selfless. And there, you know, there is no greater love than he who would lay down his life for a brother. And I get it. When Jesus had to punch out, man, he knew he was going to be going. He sits down and he says, hey, guys, I'm punching out of here and I, I'll be back. But until I can get back, you guys need to take care of each other. That's what he said. He didn't give him some sort of long list of things they had to do and checklists and, and sales goals and and powerpoint present he just he just said take care of each other and they're like well how do we do that we'll just do it the way i did it set the example for others to follow which is what they teach you in the rangers that leadership is setting an example for others to follow servant leadership people may not get it that's what i hear veterans say man they don't get it out here in the world no they don't but they want to and you as somebody who served with the boots on, with the Coast Guard, Marines, Air Force, Army, Navy, you you know what leadership is. You know what it means to take care of one another. You've been taught that. You've been through hardship. You're going to have to – it's a leadership challenge. You're going to have to figure out out here how to teach that to other people. Or you can stay in your own head and you can tell people that they don't get it. And you can be angry. I don't know who promised us that it's all going to be easy and happy and great. It's not. It's life. There's tough parts of it. I mean, the scriptures are pretty clear on it. Jesus was pretty clear on it. That the life in general is not easy. I have a, a pretty personal relationship with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and it took a minute for me to figure that out. I was. You know people, and I was one of them. I call them lazy Christians. We're good at talking about God because everybody talks about God, and God we trust. But I just really wasn't in touch or in tune with who Jesus was and because I had been told all my life, he died for you, so therefore you owe him.
And I'm like, I know 19 guys that died for me. Like, why is this anything special? The answer was came to me pretty clear when he spoke to me. It was, you know, Kenny, it's true. Those guys did die for you, but they're gone and I am not. I'm still here. And I just, I just talked to him. Okay. If you want to be part of my life, because it was the, it, it, it wasn't, and you know, you wish you could say it was the combat and the ranger in and all that stuff to where you had your big come to Jesus. But for me, it was a, a, a lost relationship. There is a epidemic diagnosis of PTSD in our VA system right now. Like something like 80% of the people who have PTSD who have been diagnosed with some sort of traumatic stress never even saw combat, but they were deployed. It's because they don't have the left and the right anymore. They don't have that person who's the absolute. When you come back from the military, you're, you're lost. When you get out and you're back here in the real world, just because you got off an airplane from Afghanistan doesn't mean you're home. And so you're trying to figure out who is my left? Who is my right? Where do, where's my sense of purpose? Where do I fit in? And you're just, you're lost. And sometimes our military brothers and sisters are closer to us than our own family. And quite often that's the case. That's why we have such a, you know, a huge divorce rate in the military. It fell apart. And I found myself just in shambles. And it's because I gotten so far off path and I let the marriage not be God-centered and I, and I stopped being God-centered and not that I was doing anything crazy. I just wasn't talking and wasn't, he wasn't a part of my life. What I can't teach anybody to do is how you emotionally handle that because sooner or later you put it all on a back in your, on the back burner, you stick it on another hard drive, you put it into another box, you contain it, but it's going to come out sooner or later. And because we're, emo we're we're human beings, we're spirits, we care. We care that that was our friend that got hurt. We, we wonder if we could have done more. And, and then the times that all that starts coming out is when you're back and you have time to process. And then your brain starts doing the things that it does, you know. And, and what I do, the quiet time that I find is in running and I'm a pilot and I, I'm up there I think I get better reception because I'm at 10,000 feet a lot. When you start adopting an attitude of gratitude, it's infectious. And you start realizing that most of my time I spend thanking him for things. If you can live where God's centered and you have an attitude of gratitude, you default, your default becomes, instead of feeling victimized or this isn't fair, or you start seeing things as gifts. And you're like, oh man, thank you. This is a passage from Jesus Calling for 17 April. I'm training you in steadiness. Too many things interrupt your awareness of me, and I know that you live in a world of sight and sound, but you not, must not be a slave to those stimuli. Awareness of me can continue in all circumstances, no matter what happens. This is the steadiness I desire for you. Don't let unexpected events throw you off course. Rather, respond calmly and confidently, remembering that I am with you. As soon as something grabs your attention, talk with me about it. Thus, I share your joys and your problems. I help you cope with whatever is before you. This is how I live in you and work through you. This is the way of peace. I think we spend a lot of time 
in the church talking about problems. I think we spend a lot of time on TV talking about what's jacked up. I think we spend a lot of time complaining and griping. And I'm not saying cover it up and that it isn't happening with canned positivity, but I, I also think we need to put a little bit more emphasis on sharing our joys as well as our problems. The, the story of Black Hawk Down, it took me about 10 years to figure out that that wasn't a curse. There isn't a day that I take for granted. And that's true. I, 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 somewhere along the line, that gift's been handed to me where I understand that, you know, by all accounts, I probably shouldn't still be around and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna waste it. And that's by the grace of God. To learn more about Kenny and the veterans organization he works with called Stronger Families, please visit KennyThomas.com. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we talk with professional surfer Bethany Hamilton. A surfing prodigy at just 13 years old, Bethany's future in surfing was promising, but in one tragic incident, her life was forever altered by a shark attack that resulted in the loss of her left arm. With faith and courage, she refused to be a victim. Her story of survival and her return to competitive surfing has inspired millions. Once I started to see um, the encouragement and inspiration that was being put on other people's lives by telling my story, I realized, okay, God, this is what you're up to. Like, you want to share your story more than you want to share mine. Do you love hearing great stories of faith each week via the Jesus Calling podcast? We want to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Jesus Calling podcast, visit the Jesus Calling page at iTunes.com and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell us how you feel about the show and what future guests you'd love to see. Your reviews and subscription help us share these stories of faith to more people who need the hope and encouragement of Jesus Calling. If you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.